I'm John Kane, and this is Resistance Radio. I want to thank you for joining me. Um, wow, it's October already. <laughs> it's amazing how fast the year is going. Um, and, of course, since it's the beginning of October, it means our special day is coming up. Yeah, we're heading into the, uh, the three-day weekend that is associated not with Columbus Day, so don't even say it, but with Indigenous Peoples Day. Yeah, we're going to give you something else to discover, I guess. Um, so... Um, on that note, let me just say that I will be doing a two-hour special program uh, at 9 o'clock to 11 o'clock Monday morning, and that show is going to be a live program that airs in both Washington and in New York City. Uh, so w, that's WBAI and WPFW, uh, and we're going to take calls. Look, I've got a lot of stuff going on. I'm going, to, I'm going to talk about some things today that maybe some folks are going to want to weigh in with me on Monday, and we're going to cover some uh, some stuff on Monday as well, but... Uh, let me kind of get into it a little bit. Um, as, as many of you know, I, I spend a lot of uh, time and effort on the, the mascot battle. And every time it seems like we got this thing licked, <laughs> there's always somebody who's, uh, who's trying to you know, stand up to, to fight back on the whole thing. Uh, we've seen it with, you know, with the Washington football team. Um, and even though they seem to be uh, sticking with their name or at least abandoning the racial slur of a name that they've, they've had, <clears throat> they, um, there's, there's been some public outcry. And I talked about that a little bit last week about those people who kind of, uh, native people who stand with the white folks on this thing uh, to try to promote these mascots. But it isn't just the, the idea that there's some native people that are pushing this thing. Most of the stuff comes from, from the hard right. This, is, this issue has become part of the right versus left culture wars. Uh, critical race theory, uh, wokeism, uh, replacement theory, all of these, you know, these, these notions that people have, uh, have raised about these, these cultural wars. Look, this, this issue should never have been a political issue. And in fact, the role that I played in pushing New York State into banning this practice across the state was not just about me trying to pander to, uh, to a Democratic administration. Richard Mills, who was the commissioner of the New York State Department of Education back in 2001, he issued a directive, and he said, get rid of them, and do it in a time that's practical. I mean, he even gave him some leeway. He said, look, you don't have to do it immediately. As you phase out your uniforms and you have to replace them, as you have got to do some things with your gym floors or your walls and, or banners or whatever else, it didn't have to cost anybody anything. And he was a Republican, uh, I mean, he, I'm not saying he was a Republican, but uh, Nye said, New York State Department of Education, that was the, uh, that agency was under uh, a Republican governor, that was Governor George Pataki. So 
so the Republican administration made it real clear that, that they were opposed to this thing. And, and of course, it's easy. All you got to do is look at the data, look at the research, look at what psychological associations have done, psychologists, uh, child development experts. And of course, what all Native people, uh, every Native territory, every Native agency, organization, association, they've all, they've all come out against this thing. So it, it, it shouldn't have ever been an issue where the right could have said, oh, this is all being driven by the, the liberal elite. And, and, of course, that's what they do. Um, but we get this thing pushed through. The Board of Regents in the state of New York, um, the Board of Regents for the New York State Department of Education, voted unanimously to get rid of it, and yet we still have people fighting. Look, I, I pushed this thing forward by fighting my old high school, my old school, I, Cambridge, New York. I, I took the issue to them. I, I fought this issue in many other places, but I, I said, you know, look, i got to go back to my old high school. I can't just ignore the fact that the school that I went to uses the native mascot. So I went there. I got the school board to, to vote to retire it. And then a couple of people ran on the school board with the mascot issue being the only issue they were running on and, and then overturned the resolution to retire the mascot. I worked with some families to push this issue with the, uh, the commissioner of education, uh, Dr. Betty Rosa, uh, to push them to say, to, to look at this thing and say, look, this board is acting arbitrarily and capriciously and is abusing their discretionary authority. She agreed with those families. They filed a, what they call a 310 petition. And she agreed with the, those five families and she ordered Cambridge to retire the mascot, go back to the retirement resolution because that's the only one that you made an argument for. And of course she had hearings first. I mean, so Cambridge got to plead his case in front of her. Uh, and, and, but the, this action wasn't brought by lawyers. This was just five families who filled out their own paperwork and that kind of stuff. So this wasn't an expensive legal battle being waged by the liberal elite. This was just five families in Cambridge that, that I worked with. And, and, and we got the desired effect. But once we got it, that's when I decided, okay, because I think the, uh, the Department of Education is somewhat apolitical, I'm going to push them because I don't want to try to push a law through the state legislature. I mean, every state legislature is so divided. It doesn't matter if it's a red state or a blue state. It doesn't matter. There's still such division in these, in these state legislatures that it's almost impossible to do anything that might ruffle the feathers in this, in this again, this culture war. So I figured, well, the Department of Education, these are professionals. These are, people, are professional educators. They should be able to look at the data and come up with a determination to do what Rosa has done to Cambridge, they should do to all schools. And there was still like 200 schools in New York State with, with native mascots, including a couple that were still called the R word. It's interesting. I, I brought this thing up on uh, WBAI a couple of weeks ago. We, can't, we can say what the R word represents, but we can't say what the N word represents. It, it's, it's kind of, even as we go down this path, we know that there's a level of racism that is still acceptable when it comes to Native people. So we got a racial slur that we call the R-word. Other schools have used the, that R-word for their, their mascot, their nickname. And I can say the R-word. I can spell it right out in, on all of the radio stations. Can't do it with the N-word, though. Just, just an interesting side. I just had to bring that up. So, um, so we pushed this thing, and, and I pushed on Dr. Rosa pretty hard. I said, look, if you can do this at one school, you can do it to all of them. And sure enough, ultimately, her administration pushed through a statewide ban. 
it had to go before the Board of Regents, and I think there's like 17 people on there. I mean, it's a, it's a pretty big board, and they voted unanimously to issue this ban. And, and the ban isn't just um, the imagery, and it isn't just names that are, that are automatically uh, you know, associated with Native people, but have been associated. So, for instance, people say, well, what's wrong with the word chief? That's not really just Native people. Or what's wrong with the word braves or warriors or, or, or raiders and that kind of stuff? So, so, and I worked, I was actually asked by Dr. Rosa to, to sit on the Indigenous uh, Mascot Advisory Council. And so the guidelines that we put in place, and I was a part of that, was to say that if you have a nickname that has been associated with Native people, I, I, at all. I mean, we could probably make some determination. If you did it 50 years ago, maybe it's not a big deal. But, but if, if you had a name like Raiders, and you were the Red Raiders, and you had native, a native mascot, you're probably not going to be able to, we're not going to let you use that anymore. Or if you had the word Warriors, and you didn't have a Spartan Warrior, or a Trojan Warrior, or you know, some American enlisted men, you, if you clearly were using native people, which almost all of them did, uh, if you were using native people, then, uh, then no, you can't use the word, you can't use the word anymore. It doesn't matter if you just change the logo. We're not going to let you do that. We're going to, because it, it's always going to have that association, at least for a significant period of time. So rip the bandaid off, get rid of both. Get, you know, if you're going to, if you're going to have to repaint your floor because your logo changes, if you're going to have to change something on your, on your uniforms, change it all. Come up with something that's more benign. It's really that simple. It never is that simple. So, so as I talk to you today, as we go into um, the Indigenous Peoples Day weekend, and ultimately next month is supposed to be our special month. That's uh, uh, November ends up being National Native American Heritage Month. But again, we face a level of racism that is usually not very well detailed, defined, or discussed. Right now, there are four schools that are fighting in New York State that are fighting the mascot issue, four of them. One of them was fighting, is Cambridge, which was fighting the order from, uh, from Dr. Rosa specifically to them, which by now should be a moot point because now her order isn't, wasn't just picking on them. And that was part of their argument. Now, the, now it's a, a statewide ban. So it's, it's kind of a moot point. That argument's gonna actually be heard on the 10th, the day after Indigenous Peoples Day. That's, what, that's the way Cambridge is gonna celebrate Indigenous Peoples Day, by arguing that they, that they still wanna, maintain this identity theft that they've been, uh, they've been doing for you know, 50 or 80 years or whatever else. So that's one school, and that's in state court. Now, they already lost in court. They're appealing their, their loss, so they can't even bring up new, I new issues. They can't even bring it up. The only new issue that can be brought up is the fact that now there's a statewide ban, which, like I said, it kind of makes it a moot point. So there's that. Then there's a school called uh, uh, Massapequa in Long Island. And these other three schools are all in Long Island where they've got plenty of money, I guess. They must have enough money because they can waste it on these uh, frivolous lawsuits. Massapequa is trying to sue in federal court that this ba ban is a violation of um, the Constitution, that it's unconstitutional and that their, uh, their free speech rights are being violated and that kind of stuff. Uh, so that's what Massapequa is. They're, tr they're trying to invalidate the entire ban. Good luck with that. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about that in just a second. But let me talk about the other two schools. The other two schools are trying to do this little maneuvering. They're trying to play a little bit of semantics and word games. And they're saying, well, we want, we want to keep the name. 
So we're going to just change the logo. I don't know what they're going to change it to. If they're going to, and, and they make the argument, while warrior, you know, can also oftentimes mean a, a soldier. It could mean, uh, I don't know, Japanese, you know, samurai. I don't know. It could, be, it could mean anything as far as the way they're arguing. And so they're saying to, to ban our word that we've used, even if we're prepared to change the logo, uh, that that's wrong. So they're going to fight to try to keep the name Warrior. Two schools. The one is, um, uh, let me see, what's the name of the schools here? It is um, Wontog and uh, Wyandotte. Wyandotte and Wontog, those two, those two schools. And it's crazy because Massapequa, Wyandotte, and Wontog, are, these are all native names, right? Most people can't even figure out where, associate where the words come from. And, and of course, they're somewhat bastardized. They always are. But um, so they, these two schools want to keep calling themselves the Warriors, and so even though their town is native and they're going to call themselves warriors, they're, they're going to try to say, yeah, but we're not associating with native people anymore. I don't know what they're going to do. Like I said, it could be Trojan warriors or whatever else. I don't know what they're going to do. So that's what they're suing. And they're suing in federal court. Both, all three of these schools in Long Island are suing in federal court. So let me go back to Richard Mills again, because here's the thing. If these two schools had heeded any portion of Richard Mills's uh, directive, over 20 years ago, if they had changed their, their logo from being native to a Spartan warrior or a Trojan warrior, they might have been able to slide through, especially if they did it like, you know, when, when many of the other schools did, which was 20 years ago. If they had changed their logo 20 years ago, they might have been able to slide through this time. And, and, and if I were sitting, you know, if we were still making determinations, which, which we were as a part of this indigenous mascot advisory council, if those schools had changed their logo 20 years ago, I probably would have submitted. I, I, I would have you know, said, yeah, yeah, okay, all right. They, they, they heeded, at some level, Commissioner Mills' order, and, uh, and they, they changed their, their logo. They didn't change their name, but 20 years have passed. Now that's a long time, and, and pretty much anybody who's going to those schools is not cheering for their team as native warriors. They're, che they're cheering for them as Spartan warriors or whatever else. But they didn't. And of course they didn't. They dug in. And many schools did change. But a whole lot of them didn't. And in fact, many of them didn't just ignore Richard Mills' uh, order. They flipped them off. They doubled down. They, they expanded the use. They, they've got, I, mean, I take a school like Cambridge. They've got Cambridge Indians plastered on every freaking thing you can imagine. I mean, it, it is, it's creepy. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, not just as a native person. I walk into that school. Look, I went to school there. They didn't have this stuff. They had it on the gym floor. That was the only place you ever saw it. I mean, maybe, maybe a few gym bags or something like that might have had a logo on it. And of course, always the Plains Indian headdress back then. Now it's every freaking... They, they've got folding chairs with, the, with the decals on the back of the, the back cushion. They've got uh, on every banner, uh, you know, their letterhead, every sign, every, every place you can imagine. Football field, um, the, the gymnasium, every place. It's, it's, it's almost insane. So they didn't just ignore Richard Mills's his order. They, like I said, they, they doubled down. They, they went in, into excess. And of course, keep in mind, they're spending school resources to do this. I mean, some of these schools are complaining, say, well, it's going to cost us $100,000 to get rid of all of these things. Well, if you phased it out like Mills told you to do 20 years ago, it wouldn't have cost you anything. So if you double down, and you, you actually increase your spending on these offensive mascots. 
And, and, and look, we can d debate on how offensive it is, but, but to be clear, they are stereotypical images of a people that are not represented by the student body. Let me say that again. Take some of these schools in Long Island, less than one half of 1% of the student body, of the, of the overall population, are Native. I think in Cambridge, they had like 1%, 1% of the, uh, of the demographics of, of that Cambridge area in New York were, were Native. 1%. So we're talking about 99% non-Native. And in, in some places, it's 99.5%. I mean, it's, it is so clear that, there are no, that there's no Native representation there. And of course, other than the names that have been incorporated, so to speak, as, as town names or whatever else, there's not a whole lot that you can associate any of these places. I mean, we've been erased. I've done shows on erasure, and this is, this is a classic example of erasure. So if you double down because your white kids or non-Native kids want to play Indian, and you know, it's not even the kids. It's the alumni. It's the guys who graduated 30 years ago, 40 years ago, 50 years ago. But damn it, I was an Indian when I was in kindergarten, and I'm an Indian today. No, you're not. You're a white guy. And, and, and that's just the bottom line. And, and I've said this before, and let me say it one more time before I even get to the other schools. You could not do this with anybody else. Not only could you not use black people for a mascot, and, and you couldn't do it for a bunch of reasons. One is it'd be really, really difficult to find a name that you could use that would have associate your school as honoring black people with their mascot. I don't know what you would use for a logo, don't know what you would use for a nickname, but here's the other thing. <laughs> There's no way that black people would stand for a bunch of white people running around calling themselves black simply because their school's mascot is black. And that's what we experience as native people. That's why I call it the identity theft. You've got, these, you've got these people who are claiming that identity. See, they're not just, they don't just say they play for a team called the Indians or the Warriors or the Redskins. Yeah, I said it, the R word, sorry. No, they don't just do that. They claim to be those. And as we've protested and raised issues over this at the, you know, at the professional level, the college level, and at the high school level, we've actually, some of these people actually have the gall to say, well, we're not talking about you anyway. You're not even those people anymore. I mean, they'll insult us. Even, <laughs> I mean, they say, oh, we're not trying to be offensive. But then they intentionally offend us and call us down when we say, look, this is a problem. You can't do this anymore. And, you know, and I'll, and I'll say the same thing let me get back to uh, uh, Massapequa. Massapequa, to be suing now, I would think that somebody should, could make the argument that you should have sued when Richard Mills was the commissioner. He's the one who laid this down in the first place. You may not have followed his directive, but it didn't mean the directive wasn't placed. It was. And it was challenged, and, he, and, and his, his directive held. I'm not saying every school followed it. Because he didn't say it had to be done by a certain date. It wasn't a, a complete ban. It was a directive to remove the mascots. That's what he said. And he said, do it in a time that's practical. I would think that, that it wouldn't be a hard stretch for, for any court to say, you should have sued 20 years ago. You can't come back now and sue 20 years later. When you've had 20 years to change it since the or original directive, and now when you, when you finally have a drop dead date for, for getting rid of it, now you want to sue? You should have sued 20 years ago. They, they've used the same argument many, many times on a lot of different issues. I mean, in fact, <laughs> when the first lawsuit against the Washington football team to try to um, uh, uh, go after the trademark, saying that you can't trademark a racial slur, 
when, when that argument was first made, the Washington football team prevailed because the court said the people who brought the suit were too old. Yeah, <laughs> let me say it again. They said, you, um, th this team's had this name for all this time, and now you're in your 50s or however old Suzanne Harjo was at the time. But um, if you'd have brought this thing when you were 18 years old or within a couple of years of, of turning 18, so once you were a legal adult that have enough standing to bring this case, that's one thing. But they basically said the statute of limitations had expired for, um, for a, a woman who was elderly to bring this case. I mean, so they had no problem saying you can't bring the case because you're too old to, to Suzanne Harjo and company. So uh, some younger Native people brought the case instead. And, then, and, they, and they kind of prevailed. They did prevail. Of course, that whole mascot um, or that, that uh, trademark issue ended up getting rendered moot because there was an, uh, an Asian-American rock band, and they called themselves the Slants. And they were being denied a trademark because, ironically, the Patent and Trademark Office was saying, yeah, you, can't, you, you can't do that with a, with a racial slur. And she said, yeah, but we are Asian, and we're not being derogatory towards ourselves. And now you can so So... The band, the Slants, sued the uh, the Patent and Trademark Office, and they prevailed. Look, and these guys felt terrible that that this thing was going to end up affecting the. You know, many of our people have talked to some of these guys about this, and but in the end, because they wanted to call themselves what was being regarded as a racial slur by the, the Patent and Trademark Office, it rendered the whole Washington football team's name uh, moot. Of course, it's gone now, so it's, it's, it's kind of water under the bridge or over the dam or whatever they call it. But, uh, so, but, but this, this is kind of the history, right? So I guess the reason I wanted to bring this thing up today is because these lawsuits really only got filed within the last month or so, and some of them only a couple of days ago. And it's just, it's just incredible that you can have predominantly and, and always non-native and mostly white folks fight this thing, and then again, bring it into this ridiculous level of animosity that is drummed up from this, uh, these culture wars on everything. But, but certainly to bring this issue that is pretty clearly harmful, and I say that not as just a Native person who, who is bugged by this stuff, but having read the research done by the American Association, uh, Psychological Association, the Association, uh, New York Association of School Psychologists, other child development experts, they all said, yeah, this is kind of damaging. I mean, it, and, and the crazy part is, I can't talk about the mascot issue without juxtaposing it against what Native people were going through at the time that many of these schools adopted these things. And I'm talking about residential schools. So these residential schools took children from their families, from their communities, from their nations, and sent them into these schools that were more like prisons than anything else. And the children were abused as a part of a therapy to assimilate them. That's what the, what the whole goal is. The, the, the slogan for these schools on the US side was kill the Indian, save the man. On the Canadian side, they had something similar. They said they kill the Indian in the child or something like that. But it, it still referred to killing the identity. So. At the same time that Native children are being beaten and punished and sometimes killed 
because many children died in these schools, over issues simply associated with their identity, little white kids could put the, smear their mom's lipstick on their face and run around with war paint on and beat their oatmeal cans for tom-toms and play Indian all day long as a part of their school. I mean, I, you can't look at these two things and say, okay, well, one, may, one is okay and one isn't. I mean, and this is kind of what we're, what we're facing. So I oftentimes have to, have to bring that up just to put things in a perspective so people realize what we're talking about in terms of identity theft and erasure. And, and make no mistake about it, this use of our images for logos and for, uh, for mascots is also erasure. It's not just theft because it's always mischaracterized. I mean, like I said, Plains Indian headdresses. I mean, um, uh, Massapequa, they don't have... Uh, an Algonquin uh, native person represented in their logo? No, they got somebody with a full Plains Indian headdress. Why? Because that's how Hollywood portrays us. So, I mean, I've got to put this stuff out there. And and look, I know I've talked about this a lot, but, you know, this this show, you know, airs in, in Washington, D.C., where that fight was as uh, heated up as, as any over the Washington football team. And when I look at these schools in Long Island with with the resources to, to launch these frivolous lawsuits, understanding that they're still taking money away from children. Don't make any mistake about it. They're taking the money that would be used for other educational purposes, and they're taking it away. That's what they're doing. So there's no, no real question here about you know, where the resources are coming from. And of course, none of them are real quick to provide the accounting. You, you've literally got to sue under the Freedom of Information Act to, to get them to, a, to give a full accounting on how much money they're spending on this stuff. So, again, we'll see how this thing plays out. Like I said, on October 10th, the, um, the matter of Cambridge versus the New York State Department of Education is going to be heard in, uh, in state, uh, state appellate court. Um, and... And we'll, we'll see how that plays out. I mean, I can't imagine this thing isn't just going to be tossed. And look, I understand there's a lot going on in, in, in the country, a lot going on in Washington, a lot going on in New York, especially with a guy named Donald Trump. Um, which, on that note, since I brought his name up, and I'm pretty much done with the, <laughs> with the mascot issue, um, some guy with a MAGA hat on decided to uh, shoot a protester uh, in New Mexico uh, early, early this week. And the reason these guys were protesting was because New Mexico or, or the town or whatever uh, where this, uh, this incident took place was going to re-erect, not just erect, but re-erect a statue of this, uh, this conquistador who was actually named the first governor. And it wouldn't even been a state of New Mexico, I don't believe. It was, it was, while it was still under Spanish control. And the guy was... He committed all kinds of atrocity against Native people. I mean, hundreds of people were killed by this guy. So Native people said, we're opposed to the statue being erected. And again, culture wars issue, right? See, nobody can just look at what the Native people are saying and why they're against guys like Columbus or, or, or this guy being praised in this way. Nobody wants to look at the truth. They just want to say, yeah, but uh, I'm somehow connected to him. I'm Italian or I'm Spanish or I'm Hispanic. So, I mean, so... That's you end up turning it into a culture war when it's really about trying to write history. I mean, I mean, write by correcting and not handwrite. But uh, so this guy 
tries to jump over a wall to get to one of the speakers, and he's stopped by a few people, and then uh, and he fires a shot into fired a couple of shots. I, I think he fired a shot into one guy, shot him in the abdomen. He he's he, he has uh, he's lived. I mean he's um, uh, he's probably going to recover. I don't know what the extent of his injuries, but uh, but he wasn't killed. But it would have been worse. But apparently his gun jammed. And while he was running away, he was trying like hell to get his uh, gun unjammed so he could shoot more people. I mean, and he had, he had pointed the gun and tried to fire it at several other people. I mean, so that happens. And, and I, only, I bring it up on the tails of a conversation or a, mentioning Trump because he's, he was brazenly wearing one of those MAGA hats, one of those Trump hats. That's what he represented himself as when he went to shoot these peaceful demonstrators in New Mexico. Now, of course, we've also heard the, the tragedy, um, uh, the shooting that is taking place at Morgan State University, not far from Washington in Baltimore. And so we, we, continue, we continue to see people of color, marginalized people being targeted for, and Morgan, Morgan State University is, is, is a historically um, black college or university. It's an HBCU. So look, it, it, it's, it's, relative, it's pretty disgusting, I mean, to see the state of affairs, social conflict, and, and you know, politics. All, it, it's so ugly right now. And look, I know on a station, on any radio station, or on a podcast, or, you know, doing these, these Facebook Live videos, there's a lot of things that people can talk about. But you know what? I'm not going to lose my focus. Because while you can listen to talking heads talking about Trump all day long, or, you know, uh, or some of what's happening in, in the Ukraine, or, or any place else, I'm still going to talk about native issues and I will talk about how they connect to some of these things like culture wars, like the, the social conflict that, that seems to be just, you know, percolating uh, in such a bad way across the United States and other places. But um, yeah, I, I feel like I've, I've got to sometimes at least bring it into, into somewhat of a, you know, some perspective anyway. All right. I know everyone's saying, well, don't you ever have any good news? Well, even the good news has like a, an angle to it. So a fairly prominent, almost a celebrity type on the Canadian side, a guy by the name of Wab Canoe, um, was, I don't even know how they work things on the Canadian side, but, but he's the um, premier of Manitoba. So a native guy crosses over into, you know, non-native politics and, uh, and everybody's, everybody's singing the praises. Everybody's happy as hell because the, there's a native guy who, and I don't think he's the first, a provincial premier. I, I think there have been. Obviously, Northwest Territory, I would assume, must have had a native premier. But he's the first one in Manitoba. <sighs> Sorry, it's hard for me to get excited about this stuff. And, and the reason I, I have a hard time getting excited about this stuff is like, same on the American side. When I see a native person, look, I'm happy for, for Wab Canoe. Look, you've, you've broken a glass ceiling for yourself, but you work for them now. You're not they're representing us. You're representing Manitoba. Yeah, there's native people in Manitoba. But your primary interest is going to be the province of Manitoba. And none of the provinces, even Northwest Territory, are going to um, place the highest priority on native people. So, and that brings me back to the U.S. Look, there was a lot of, you know, a, a lot of news and a lot of noise made when uh, Deb Haaland and Sharice David got elected to Congress. And I think there were a couple of there some people in state office that got elected, native people. Um, and lots, you know, lots of cheering and, you know, 
rousing applause that, that these two Native women, like there were already Native people that were in Congress, <laughs> on the right, by the way, <laughs> uh, Oklahoma, a few other places. In fact, there was one guy, you got to go back in time a little bit, there was one guy by the name of Charles Curtis, who not only was a, a congressman and then a senator, he ultimately was the vice president of the United States. Most people don't even have any idea that there was a native vice president of the United States. You know why? Because he didn't do a damn thing for native people. I mean, he, the guy was a bit of a joke. I mean, there's actually pictures and, and video of him, you know, holding a little toma wooden tomahawk and sticking feathers in, in his hair. I mean, mocking native people even as he was in these, these offices. And, um, you know, he was, he was just, you know, on, uh, a conservative uh, politician. The fact that he was native didn't make any difference. And I got to tell you, when was the last time you heard Sharice David's name? David's name? I haven't heard her, anybody mention her. You know, and yeah, I don't know, maybe she's not even in the office anymore. I don't know. But uh, I, I never heard anything that came out of her. Deb Halland you've heard of. Why? Because she, she went from being in Congress to being named the uh, interior secretary. Cabinet position in, in the Biden administration. And again, everybody was losing their minds on how joyful and how happy they were. But what has she done for Native people? I got to tell you, as I sit here on the territory of the Seneca Nation, knowing that the Interior Department, even this Interior Department, not just the, the last you know, you know, four or five uh, administrations, hasn't done a, a goddamn thing to address the inequities that, that exist between states and, and Native people on gaming issues. Uh, the, the Senecas, they have their gaming compact that's going to expire uh, in the beginning of December, less than two months away. It's going to expire, and the question is, what happens? You know why the question is, what happens? Because the Interior Department won't say what happens. They won't do a damn thing. They've talked about, well, maybe we're going to do a rule change to try to level the playing field. But Deb Haaland never intervened, even if the Seneca's got, ex got half a billion dollars extorted out of them so they could turn around and throw it into a football stadium for the billionaire from Buffalo who owns the Buffalo Bills. So... I'm sorry. Let one of these folks make a liar out of me. Let them make me wrong. Diane Humatiwa, do you remember her? She was, Obama named her as a federal judge. He was, she was recommended by McCain and, uh, and Jeff Flake, two Republicans. But he, he, um, he nominated her for, for a judgeship in, in Arizona. And everybody was happy in hell. Oh, Diane Humatiwa, look how pretty she is. Same with Deb Haaland, right? Look how pretty she is. Oh, put her on the cover of magazines and everything else. Did anybody bother to find out what her record was as far as rulings that she had made? Because the first ruling she had to make involving Native people, she ruled against the Native people. No, we're going to run a highway through your ancestral lands. We don't care what we're going to do with the environment. We don't care how sacred your land is. No, she, she ruled for the developers. She ruled for the state. I mean, and it's being, now it's being challenged by uh, 20 other nations, and, and they're saying, yeah, you can't challenge that now. No, you can't challenge it. it uh, she already made her ruling. You can't enter in, in, into new, uh, new evidence into, uh, into the court case. And when, um, uh, what's his name, um, Scalise died, all across Indian country, all across Native territory, it's all, oh, let's, uh, let's put Diane Humatiu on the court. Oh, yeah. A right-wing judge just happened because she happens to have browner, browner skin and long black hair. You want her on the court? I mean, look, the Republicans have got the, the court loaded their way already. And they would have had it loaded with Diane Humatiwa, too. Nobody was even looking at her track record. So, yeah, I have a hard time getting 
getting too excited about a Native person rising in the political systems of the U.S. and Canada because they don't work for us anymore. I mean, some of these never, some of these folks never worked for us in the first place. They gained their political credentials by by serving white people, by by serving the general public. And, and look, I'm not saying it's a terrible thing, but just because somebody has Native ancestry and enters into U.S or even state or provincial politics doesn't necessarily mean that they're, that they're going to place us as the priority. In fact, they can't. The, the irony is, you take somebody like Diane Humatiwa, if she had ruled in favor of the Native people, there will, there will be some who would have said, oh, she should have recused herself from that because she's Native. Do you recuse white judges from ruling in white cases? Of course you don't. But there would have been that noise. There would have been that noise. So... I, look, I, it's hard for me to be all congratulatory towards Wab Canoe or, you know, or you know, even, even still with, with Dev Howland. Prove me wrong. Do something positive for Native people. Not just your own stature as a Native person, but for Native people. When you do that, then you'll convince me that you haven't sold out. But in the meantime, Dev Howland, you work for Joe Biden. That's who you are accountable to. You serve at his pleasure not ours. And frankly, you haven't done a whole lot. We haven't, we haven't really seen much in the way of movement on assessing how many children have been buried at these residential schools. On the Canadian side, Canada didn't do it either. It's all the nations that had to do it. They had to hire their own engineers to come in with ground penetrating radar. And it's, it's in the thousands of children that have been located buried at these schools on the Canadian side. And there's more than three times as many residential schools that were operation, in, in operation for a longer period of time on the U.S. side than on the Canadian side. Deb Hallen slowed her move on that as well. You know, she'll make a headline. She'll, look, she, she photographs well. I'll give her that. But make me wrong. You know, prove me wrong, please, please. All right. Hey, um, I don't know, it was about six years ago that I had um, the author, David Grant, on my program. And he had a new book out that I was excited to read and did read, which was called Killers of the Flower Moon, The Osage Murders and the Birth of the FBI. An incredible book. And, I, and I'm telling you, you should read the book. I know many of you won't because now it's a movie. And that movie's coming out in a couple of weeks, within the next couple of weeks, uh, right after our Indigenous Peoples Day. And... And it's probably going to be a great movie. I mean, look, to, from an uh, entertainment standpoint and, and the shock value and everything else, I am sure Scorsese's Killers of the Flower Moon with, uh, with Robert De Niro and Leonardo DiCaprio is probably going to be an incredible film. But it may not be true. I think the murder parts are going to be true. But here's the thing. When DiCaprio first wanted to do this film. He wanted to play the FBI agent who investigated. And, and I don't want to say broke the case. It was so clear that people, that, that these white folks were, were murdering uh, the Osage for their oil revenue. It was so clear. And the, uh, the, the FBI agent, a former Texas Ranger, he wanted to nail this thing down to what he thought was going to be a couple of perpetrators of, uh, of, a, of these serial killings. He knew that there was over 30 murders. In fact, in total, there may have been close to a thousand people who were murdered for their oil revenue. But they weren't just murdered. 
Now, the bigger conspiracy and the, and, the, and the amount of collaboration that took place amongst all the white people in Osage territory, everything from the storekeep to the dentist, to the lawyer, to the police, to the, um, uh, the auto salesman, you know, everybody, they all were conspiring to defraud the Osage of their massive amounts of wealth. They were actually considered the richest people in the world. In 1920, the richest people in the world were, were the, the Osage. But you know what? They weren't allowed to have their own money. Federal government says, now, these, these people are pretty incompetent. Yeah, they're almost, you know, they're not just savage, but they're ignorant. They can't have their own money. So they assigned a white man to be their guardian and managed, had, they had to prove every, every dime they spent and pocket a little bit in, in, the, in the process. But what was happening was, Men were, were, were trying to seduce these Native women, marrying them, having children, and then killing their wives. So now they're half-Native kids. Well, and, and look, Native kids, because you know, I, I, don't, I assume the Osage might be matrilineal like we are here in uh, Haudenosaunee territory. But the problem is, once the mother's killed, they may have their, they may matrilineal be, ma matrilineally be, uh, be Osage, but they don't have their mother raising them. They have their white father raising them. Their white father who killed their mother. Never prosecuted, but killed their mother. Today, there is a significant part of the Osage population that are the offspring, or the offspring of the offspring, of those fraudulent marriages that were done exclusively for the purpose of stealing their money. See, you couldn't just transfer the head rights to, to a white man. Not outright. But if you were married to an Osage woman and had children and she died, you could have control of the head rights because you were the guardians of the children as well. And that's how this thing worked. But DiCaprio decided he didn't want to play the, uh, the, the FBI agent. He, instead, he wanted to play Ernest Burkhart, who was one of the guys married to an Osage woman who was trying to kill her for her money. And her, his uncle, which was one of the, the real ringleaders in a lot of this, this effort to defraud you know, all these people. He's being played by Robert De Niro. But DiCaprio wanted to play this guy because he wanted to portray a guy who was conflicted with his love for his wife and, and the friendship and the camaraderie that he had with the Osage. And he was conflicted because he was killing them. And, and I just heard Martin Scorsese on one of the trailers who said he was drawn to this film because of the way friendship and love existed with these people committing murder and fraud and theft. And, and, and my immediate response was that they didn't coexist. There was no real love and no real friendship. The love and the friendship were, were really just examples of what I think is, the, is probably the most heinous level of premeditation that you could ever associate with murder. And the murder of hundreds of Osage. So the fact that Leonardo DiCaprio is gonna portray Ernest Burkhart as this loving husband who just happened to love money a little bit too much. I'm sorry, I have a problem with that. So look, by all means, go see the film because you do need to know about what happened to the Osage. But just remember, it's a film. It, it's, it's taken on creative license. It's, it's, there, none of the conversations in the film necessarily happened. I mean, and all I can tell you is read the book. 
Because the book is like a documentary. The book is an account of, of the facts. It's not made up dialogue. It's not made up emotions and love scenes and that kind of stuff. No, it's about murder. Murder that took place with, uh, by shooting, by poisoning, by bombing. Yeah, Molly Burkhardt, Ernest Burkhardt's wife, her sister had their house blown up while they were in it. I mean, this is what these folks were doing. They were, they were dying through poisoning, through you know, all of this stuff. I mean, and it's, it's just incredible. But don't fall in love with the character. And don't, look, don't feel all compassionate for, for the Leonardo DiCaprio character or the Robert De Niro character. I mean, if this movie pulls off what I think Scorsese is trying to pull off, which is that these people genu genuinely loved the Osage, but just felt like they had to take their money. I mean, look, I, I, I'm not going to buy that. So I'll see the movie at some point. And look, I was excited. When I first heard that this was going to be made a film, I, you know, I was thrilled to death because I, I thought the book was phenomenal. And, and I, I really wish... Whether you see the movie or not, and I'm not saying you got to read the book before you see it, but you owe it to yourself. If if this movie draws you in, if you feel somehow drawn in by this film, and feel somewhat overwhelmed by what you watch, then you got to read the book. I mean, look, I, I know reading is t reading is hard, right? <laughs> it's much easier to just sit back and stream it on Netflix or whatever. But no, you owe it to yourself. And you, you owe it to history to understand the difference between a dramatization based on a book and the actual book. So that's, that, my advice is, is, is simple. By all means, see the movie, but please read the book. I mean, I think David Grant did a great job, and, and I, I posted that on my, um, on my Facebook page, the interview that we did. I think it was like six years ago. Uh, Shawnee Rice was my co-host at the time. We... we uh, we had him on the phone, and he stayed with us for, for a good long interview, and we covered a lot of material. One of the things that I got to say, though, in a sidebar conversation that I had with David Grant, I asked him, how is it you wrote this book and really clearly portrayed the racism that was really in place, that, that really brought about this heinous series of crimes? You, 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 ha you were really clear about the level of racism. Yet, 40 miles down the road in Tulsa was one of the largest massacres that black people have ever experienced in, in a city where they were just overrun by white people just trying to kill them. So the Tulsa massacres took place at the same time. I mean, it's really, literally the same time that these murders were going on. And it's never even mentioned in the book. And, when I, when, and, uh, and David said he, he, he just neglected to bring it up. I mean, and, you know, it's kind of one of those my bad kind of things. But, you know, I've heard, I think I've heard Gran, um, De Niro, Scorsese, and DiCaprio mention the Tulsa riots in some of the interviews that they did on this film. So I'm glad it's now becoming um, brought up. And, and the reason I say that is because, as you know, I've, I talk a lot about siloing and the fact that we view Native issues through a certain lens that somehow doesn't, doesn't cross over into what black people have experienced or what other Im uh, immigrants have experienced or, you know, or what's happening in the rest of the world. 
we, we, we have a tendency to put these blinders on and only view native people through a spe specific lens. I mean, I, I've got some huge questions about how it is that such a, uh, a well-established and, and well-organized township, and there were several of them, were set up in, in Oklahoma. That, that was supposed to be native territory. There must have been a relationship between black people and native people for those, uh, for those very successful towns to have been developed. And then, of course, overrun by racist white folks. So, like I said, I, I encourage you to, um, to go uh, see the movie, but I much more encourage you to, to read the book. And, you know, and look, because we are heading into Indigenous People's Day, I got I to gotta mention, once again, this is a, um, a book by my friend, um, uh, Peter Dorico, and it is called uh, Federal Anti-Indian Law. Uh, it is the best book I've read, I've, I've read since Killers of the Flower Moon. And again, it's not a novel, it's not a story, uh, it, but it does give all the background on how the federal government has violated its own laws, its own constitution, its own so-called rule of law foundation to pass authoritarian rule over Native people. I'm going to have Peter on my show. Um, I'm, I'm thinking probably for our special month, November. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll look forward to having him on the show. I may end up doing a couple of interviews or an interview that I break up into several videos that I post on YouTube or on Facebook or whatever else. But I'm certainly going to have him on my radio show as well. Um, Peter and I go back a ways here. Uh, he's done some of the best work on writing um, how the doctrine of Christian discovery has become codified into law and how it turns into the plenary powers doctrine that Congress claims over Native people, how it turns into this this BS made up trust responsibility the federal government says that they have over Native people. All that he does a great job with his book. And and I feel again, two best books I've read in over a decade are Killers of the Flower Moon and Federal Anti-Indian Law. Uh, if you again, if you listen to the show because you want to learn something about how it is that Native people what, what for one thing, how do we still exist? How how have we managed to survive? 150 years of residential schools, the murders, the, the scalp bounties, the placement on, you know, or the steal, theft of our land and the placement of ourselves on, on impoverished native territories, reservations. How is it that, that we manage to be somewhat resilient in, in the face of all that stuff? And look, it ain't easy. It ain't easy. And, and look, I am probably the only show on the Pacific, the Pacifica network specifically, that is based on uh, a producer, a host living on a native territory. I live in the Cattaraugus territory of the Seneca Nation. My wife is Oneida. Um, I'm Mohawk, and we live in Seneca territory. I live a life on a native territory in a native community. So when I speak of the adversities that we face, I speak of it from my experience, from, from, from where I live, how I live, and the people that I, that I live with. So I'm not just speaking about something I read in a book. I'm thrilled to death to, to come across a few good books, like Federal Anti-Indian Law or Killers of the Flower Moon. But that's not where I, where I get inspired to have these conversations that I have each week here on the show. So I want to remind people, on Monday, 
uh, Indigenous Peoples Day from 9 to 11, I will be doing a two-hour special broadcast, live broadcast, that will be airing in both New York City and in Washington. And I'll post that show, that two-hour show. I'll, I'll probably stream it live on Facebook Live as well. And I'll post it up as a podcast as well. And look, I plan to spend most of the second hour taking your calls. And I'm hoping, I don't, I rarely get to do live radio in, in D.C. So I'm hoping that I can get some callers in from, from Washington as well. And look, if you want to argue with me over things like the mascot issue, by all means, dial in. We'll have that conversation. I'll maybe not argue. But if you want to challenge some of the things that I say on this program, I'm up for that. I'm good with that because honestly, when somebody tries to confront me on a position, oftentimes it allows me to explain it more thoroughly and it allows me to bring other parts of the conversation. And frankly, I'll tell you the other thing it does. Oftentimes it exposes the level of racism that ends up being the foundation of the positions that I'm, that I'm challenging in the first place. So again, I want to thank you for joining me for this program. Uh, this show will go up as a podcast. Obviously, it's streaming on Facebook Live, as I mentioned. And of course, we are airing in Washington this week. So I want to thank you for joining me and um, look, for you, look for me on Monday, Monday morning. At, at a interesting, I think we're coming on right after uh, Democracy Now! So I may, I may draw in a few listeners that don't normally catch my program. So uh, if you got the day off, great. You know, settle in and, uh, and join me. I know they've got special programming going on on both WPFW and uh, WBAI uh, pretty much all day long. But uh, I, get to, I get to kick it off. So, uh, so join me again, Indigenous Peoples Day. That's this coming Monday the 9th uh, from, from 9 to 11. And uh, I look forward to, to catching up with you guys there. And I mean literally catching up because I don't always do uh, phone-in programs. I started that way, and I want to do more of it. In fact, I'm probably going to look into doing more live radio uh, for the uh, for WPFW. Uh, so I may be doing two shows uh, a week, not just one show airing twice. So um, that's something that, uh, that I'm working out with, uh, with the folks at WPFW. So again, look forward to it. Uh, by all means, tune in uh, and you'll, we'll announce the call-in number if you're in Washington or New York or if you're listening any other way. So if you're, if you're catching us on uh, the Facebook live stream, don't be afraid to, to pick up the phone and give me a call. I'd love to hear from you. love to have a conversation with you. And uh, it's, it's, part of, you know, it's, it's part of the reason I do this. So I look forward to it. I want to thank you for listening. I am John Kane, and this is Resistance Radio.